Hi, I'm JJ McQuarrie. And I'm Kevin Kozer. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures, and we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So give us a listen, and remember, keep talking who. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video junkyard podcast you are listening to the doctor who target book club podcast happy listening this is john leeson and i play kate nine on doctor who you're listening to the doctor who target book club podcast enjoy your travels and that is compulsory Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the taxing task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. That's actually hard to say. My <laughs> name is Tony Whip, and today we have a not at all taxing three person discussion panel, including our so called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's a worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, we welcome back to the podcast a guest who always pays her debts, the glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. I mean, you haven't looked at my Great Lakes loan balance, but uh, I'll let... <laughs> that's that's fine. Hello. Hey, at least you're paying your student loans back. <laughs> well, not since COVID happened, but you know, um, nope. yeah. <laughs> it'll happen at some point. But at least you have made a payment at some yeah, point yeah, in the last 10 correct. years, yes? <laughs> Whereas I can't say that. <laughs> anyway, sorry. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine that, please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetpc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them. Just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them, you have your own facility on the far planet of Pluto, which is not a planet anymore, <laughs> just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. That was a labored one. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Guy Lambert, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group, where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue now discussing Tom Baker's fourth season with Terrence Dick's novelization of The Sunmakers. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. 
Doctor Who and the Sunmakers, adapted by Terence Dix from the script by Robert Holmes, that aired from 112677 to 121777, published by Target Books in November 1982. As of this recording in July of 2021, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 127 pages. Now, this book has the distinction of being the last Tom Baker television serial to be adapted under the official Target logo not counting the novelization of Shada that came out under BBC Books' Target imprint in recent years, because that counts, but not really. <laughs> it's also the only book published in 1982 that's not based on a story that aired in the previous two years for some reason. If you look at the rest of the books published in 1982, they are all of recent stories. This one is the oldest of all of them. This is Robert Holmes' last contribution to the show while he's still script editor, and it's definitely one of the most satirical. You may have noticed a certain preoccupation with the concept of taxation in the story. Oh, Maybe. Yeah. And oh, that's yeah. entirely deliberate. <laughs> Holmes was going through a messy fight with the Inland Revenue, which at the time was the equivalent of our IRS, over levies applied to his work as a freelance writer. And anybody who's had to deal with the dreaded 1099 form knows what he's talking about. The script, as a result, is littered with in-jokes about the British tax system, some of which only viewers of the time would get, mm. such as an escape route being called P45, which was an inland revenue tax form. It's as if he'd called it Route 1040 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he even set the story on Pluto, specifically because in Greek, the prefix Pluto refers to wealth, as in the word plutocracy. Oh. Yes. <laughs> okay. Producer Graham Williams wasn't entirely happy with using a family show for what ends up sounding like an indictment of the entire capitalist system, but he did like the comedic tone of the story as a whole. You'll notice that Terrence Dix also found some of the content objectionable, as he changes the tone of the scene of Hade's murder from one of jubilation, as it is on screen, to one in which everyone regrets what they've done, which is interesting. You may also notice that the Doctor and Leela are not together as much in the story, and that too was intentional. While the working relationship between Tom Baker and Louise Jameson had improved somewhat, Holmes contrived to keep them apart for most of the story. Jameson was still not happy with the direction her character was taking, though, and felt that Leela's potential was not being fulfilled. As a result, the producer realized he may need to come up with a new companion by the end of the season, as there was even talk of having her killed off in this story. Oh, man. Ugh. However, Jameson has also said that this is her favorite serial of all the ones she's been in. One noteworthy guest star in the story is Michael Keating, who would go on to play the thief Villa in Blake 7. Holmes would go on to contribute five more stories before his death in 1986. So we'll be reading at least five more Holmes stories that were written, including the one and only novelization that he himself ever did. So, Jenny, as is our tradition here, we always rope the guest in to read the back cover. So would you be willing to read that for us? With pleasure. I Let me put on my steamiest voice. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. But we're going to uh, talk about that. Um, yes. Everyone knows that Pluto is a barren, airless rock. So naturally, the doctor is surprised when he discovers artificial suns, an ultra-modern industrial city, and a group of colonists being worked and taxed to death in this inhospitable and supposedly undeveloped part of the universe. With the help of his companion Leela and the faithful canine, the doctor takes on the mysterious and powerful company, ruthless exploiter of planets and their people. Oh, that's it. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> it's you notice how brief that is. I mean, it's not quite as brief as the last one. No. <laughs> but uh, nothing's quite as brief as the last one, not even love. Yes. Well, first impressions of this one, Jenny, what was your first impression when I sent this book to you? I was excited because it's by Terence Dix, uh, who I've come to, you know, enjoy reading. And the cover, I, something about, I don't know, the, the sun makers, I think that that was a really interesting word, which now that I think about it is a shame. We don't really, they're not all that important kind of in the story, or I thought that sun makers might be a person, and I don't 
think they are. Uh, they're they're mm. like machines, right? And but I was intrigued by this kind of orange coloration and this man who sort of looks. What did I say? Like a constipated person who's lost his neck um but <laughs> now, it makes a lot more sense once you read and you know what he is apparently he is a eucerian is that the, the yep, word eucerian. who who are not supposed to have a lot of neck and now i also appreciate the green cast on his face since he very deliciously i guess self-destructs into a kind of slime and gets flushed <laughs> down his own like portable toilet which is a really fantastic end to this and just made me think, God, if, if all shitty politicians and bureaucrats could just do that, you know, that would be fantastic. Oh, yes. <laughs> that was a really, really hilarious kind of end to this. So I, I was intrigued. Uh, it seemed interesting. Excellent. Yeah. And I, something I love about that cover is it looks like it was drawn by Jack Kirby because it's got that sort of blocky look to it. Uh. Except it's not Jack Kirby, obviously. <laughs> but yeah. Dalton, how about you? First impressions. The, the name Sunmakers to me, I didn't know quite how to take it, but it did sound somewhat hopeful in a way. Imagining a place without a sun and then someone mm. is there to make a sun, to make it habitable. And then, yeah, down below, seeing this weird little mini me uh, hunched <laughs> yeah. over the desk. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately noticed the the huge head and thought that it may have been uh, just a weird depiction of him. But mm-hmm. then we find out that no, he actually has a huge head, oh, um, yes. and that and that's part of it. So yeah, initially, kind of just by the title, thought it was going to be something hopeful, and then once we get reading, we realize no, no, there's lots of bad things going on here that we do not like. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely an understatement. <laughs> All right, where should we start? One thing I want to start with is that this is Jenny's first time encountering Leela and K-9. It is. Yes, and I'm interested to hear what you think of them, because we've been talking about them extensively. Well, we've been talking about Leela extensively. Canine mm-hmm. just recently joined, but uh, what you thought of them as characters and all of that? Yeah, thank you for asking. I yeah, I you know come in infrequently enough to the podcast that often there are suddenly new companions, and I'm like, oh, who are these people? And this time. I was really interested because I'm like, oh, all of a sudden we have apparently some sort of AI robotic dog kind of thing, um, canine, very, very campy kind of name. And then this this Leela person who I immediately thought upon reading her a little bit more, oh, I wonder if this is an inspiration for Futurama's Leela uh, <laughs> because they have some similarities. Uh, and I made a note. So the doctor and K-9 are playing chess. This is right in the beginning. They're still on the TARDIS. The doctor makes a comment to, to Leela about machines can't do chess. I'm doing so well. And then we have the narration. Leela made no reply. She was under the impression that they were engaged in some complicated ritual to propitiate <laughs> the TARDIS, <laughs> which she firmly believed to be some kind of god. And so I thought, <laughs> okay, so we... I know that she's in animal skin, so I'm like, well, can she, like, speak English? Like, is she, what kind of companion <laughs> is this person? And then the narration is sort of filling in her thought for me, for her. And I thought, well, I don't believe that this character would know how to use the word. Pro- is it propitiate? 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 I don't even know. I don't even know how to pronounce it, right? I know what it means. But uh, it's one of those SAT words that you memorize to, to get right on the test, not to actually use. Um, uh, and so I thought, well, she's she as a character probably doesn't know this. So that means the narration is maybe filling in her thoughts for us. And I wasn't sure what kind of character she was going to be. But then I realized, oh, OK, she she has the ferocity of wherever she is from, but the ability to speak English and <laughs> more or less be a communicable character in, in this thing who I really enjoyed. I think she might be my favorite companion yet. Huh. She's utterly unwhiny. She does whatever she needs to do. Uh, she, I love how brutal she is and willing to just kill people. Like, <laughs> it's convenient. And there was even some other time where she wants to kill someone and the doctor's like, don't do that. And she's like, well, do you remember what happened last time when I didn't kill them? And he's like, oh, well, okay, just wait a second. And I'm like, ah, she has a point, doctor. <laughs> like, um, And my favorite part where she is in the, the steamer, you know, in, in the little, the hibachi, 
and the <laughs> which is a fabulous part of the story I, i'll save that for later but they're like oh we need to to hear her screaming that's that's part of the pleasure of this and she says that she had resolved to die without a sound and i was like that's so badass and so awesome mm-hmm. that she knows that this is what's going to give them pleasure and even in a situation from which she can't escape she wants to deprive her her captors of this last pleasure mm-hmm. um, so yeah. i was quite smitten with leela and canine too I, I think it was very funny how it sort of straddled the line between being smart but also a dog like there's some electronic whining and it wants to be praised uh, i thought that that was <laughs> was very charming Okay. It's interesting that you find her your favorite companion so far, because Allison said exactly the same thing last time. Interesting. Yeah. Leela seems to be a favorite. I know that Dalton likes her quite a bit, too. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm wondering to place her, too, because when you talked about the actress, I looked it up, because then I got curious about the Leela-Leela connection, and I see this outfit looking very similar to kind of a Raquel Welsh situation. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered, though, about the, the chronology of that, because I, I don't know when that picture came out. That would have been 1978. <laughs> okay. Yeah, or 77, depending on the picture that you saw. But yeah, she's definitely Raquel Welch-inspired, though I'd okay. say she's a much stronger female character than just about anybody that Raquel Welch actually played. Yeah, and I know nothing about about what actually that character was. I just know the image. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wondered if it was which way it went. Okay. Yeah, that's exactly it. And Dalton, how do you feel about Leela in this one, given that we've been following her development? And what do you think of the use of K-9 in this one? I think that this one is, it's still on that upward trajectory for Leela. I feel like she really shines in this one. I know you, you kind of explained that the separation from the doctor was intentional, but I still feel like she's, an incredibly strong character. This just solidifies her as, yeah, I agree with Jenny and Allison, like as one of my favorite companions, she, she's just a spitfire and a, and and someone that will not back down. She's not afraid and she'll do whatever she needs to do to succeed. Leela is amazing in this one. Canine is winning me over. the first story i was a little wary but yeah he wasn't he's not he's not coming across as annoying as i have expected him to (laughs) and even even the bits of you know him being still being a dog it it is funny it's humorous and it brings it brings a lightness to the book even with a story like this that has a lot of heavy moments where i mean we're talking about characters being taken to be killed there's a lot of violence but Canine still adds uh, some lightness. So I know I, I said I was going to be annoyed, but I am looking forward to seeing more of, of Canine and see where he goes. Because if, if he has a, as strong of an arc as Leela, then it's quite possible that he will also be one of my favorites. Hmm. Okay. I, I had wondered because on the one hand, this story puts Leela much more in the traditional damsel in distress role for the companion, except she doesn't end up in the same way i mean she's still rescued by the doctor but as jenny pointed out she is bound and determined not to scream and not to give any satisfaction she has several badass moments in this and as for k9 well (laughs) we'll have to see we'll have to see how it goes it's definitely an interesting story for him too He's very helpful. I'm like, oh, well, this mm-hmm. this uh, robot is, is pretty cool. She's just like, hey, why don't you use your guns to shoot these people? He's like, okay. Per, per usual <laughs> Doctor Who, there were several times that I'm like, wait, did he kill that guy? And then it was like, oh, no, no, he stunned him. Okay, got it. It's very... I, I always wonder if these <laughs> books are ever going to do that. And I guess they do sometimes. You know, the the Hade moment. We can talk about that um, oh, yeah. later. But another moment that I really liked from Leela was when she moves into the area where the anxiety inducing drug is being pumped into the Mm -hmm. air and she's like oh wait a minute you know suddenly i i I feel i've lost my mojo and uh (laughs) maybe it's cordo with them at that time and he's like oh well it's it's because of this and then she's like oh well that's okay i'll just disregard my fear and yeah i was like wow what a very admirable moment for not just for that character personally but also a good reminder for readers that your emotions don't control you they don't make you um, yeah, a very nice little moment there. 
Yeah. And the fact that she has the strength of character to realize that and to say, oh, it's something in the air. Yeah. All right, fine. I can get around that. Yeah, it's it's absolutely brilliant. It is a very dark story. Dalton pointed out that (laughs) it's got some very dark moments, which is interesting because this story kind of marks the moment where the season transmogrifies from the Hinchcliffe Holmes gothic horror mode into the Graham Williams lighter comedic tone. And some people have some serious problems with that because Tom Baker on screen is at his wackiest and zaniest in the story. And the actor playing Hayde is particularly over the top, (laughs) both literally and figuratively, as it turns out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's dark. There are lots of people getting killed. And the doctor does, at one point, straight up cause someone's death. And then quips about it in a James Bond-like way. The technician in the reorientation center. Uh He he short-circuits the controls so that the guy... You're not told that the guy doesn't die. So we assume that he does. I mean, it says that he's engulfed in blue flame. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I I missed that. Okay, yeah. I'm I'm just used to assuming that, like in Pokemon, they just faint. They're They're going to the Doctor Who center afterwards. It's fine. But yeah, engulfed in blue flame, that's um, it's a little bit unambiguous. Okay. A little bit. And then the doctor says, are you sure he wasn't deaf? That sounds like a James Bond line. <laughs> and unfortunately, Robert Holmes is going to do this again with the doctor's character. It's not quite as noticeable in this one because it kind of has to be pointed out. There's a later story, one of his mid 80s stories, where it is straight up the doctor murdering somebody and then making a quip. But by that point, the doctor is kind of almost regularly doing this sort of thing, and it's kind of like, oh. But Holmes is perfectly fine with it. (laughs) Yeah. So what else do we want to talk about in this story? I would be interested in knowing how, where we are now in our, our existence as humans, how you reacted to the beginning of this story because I started looking at it and was like, oh, okay, we're doing like a Brave New World thing here, a half Brave New World, half 1984, uh, not a half, I guess it's just thirds, I can't do math, uh, <laughs> Soylent Green, you know, kind of dystopia. And I'm like, oh, this is too real. Like, I don't, <laughs> this is just too real. Like, no, no sleep time, yikes. <laughs> like, um, and I have found since the beginning of the pandemic that it's been harder for me to engage in dystopian things. It just hits uh, a little bit too close to home. Like last summer for 4th of July, uh, my, my husband and I watched Independence Day, which is usually, you know, that, that's been one of my favorite movies like for forever. I just love watching Will Smith punch an alien and yet <laughs> seeing the mayhem and seeing Bill Pullman's, you know, wife and mommy is sleeping. We were like beside ourselves. We were in tears and we were like, we can't watch this anymore. This is suddenly like too much. So I I wondered, I mean, this, this is very funny. I think there's a lot of funny stuff in here, but what your reaction was to kind of the more realistic in some sense, dystopian aspects of this narrative. Hmm. Interesting. Dalton, I'm going to let you go first. (laughs) Yeah, like Jenny, I was definitely picking up on 1984, Brave New World. I was also getting some Brazil vibes. Oh, yes. Just with like all the bureaucracy and the different levels of people, the surveillance. I mean, that that's totally 1984. But the just the way that like even in people's houses, they're they're not alone. They're not able to even exist. I know there's a scene in in Brazil where they break in and like drill a hole in a floor above where they're trying to go and then they like give the person a bill for it. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. That even echoed back with the idea of Cordo's father's death having to be paid for yeah. and then ultimately it costing more than he was told that it cost because apparently the the tax Uh, bracket had changed without him realizing it yeah just lots of really dark anti-capitalist things which i already have a long history of not liking capitalism so this is just like yeah like 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 jenny was saying it's it's i don't want to say triggering but it really like 
brings up lots of strong feelings for me. Yeah. And especially since the, the beginning of the pandemic and seeing how workers are being treated and, you know, we're being told and promised things that are not being delivered on. Uh, yeah, it's ticking a lot of boxes that I'm like, oh, damn, this this is the world that we live in. Like, yeah, fiction is no longer fiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, if this story had been made in 2021, they'd probably call the Usurian something like the Bezosians or something. Oh. <laughs> because it definitely has that feel of Amazon, doesn't it? Mm hmm that feel that you've got this massive corporation. I've also, and I, ha I hate to admit this, I've been making my slow way, actually very fast way, I'm already on the fourth film, through the Resident Evil movies, oh. uh -huh. which I'd never watched before. And I, they're pure popcorn, and I adore them even though they're stupid. And this reminds me also the, of the Umbrella Corporation from yes. those movies, mm. which is this multinational conglomerate which literally controls the world, then ends up destroying the world, and is still trying to destroy the world even after they've destroyed it. And it's got that feel to it. The thing that was even kind of the most chilling to me at the end was how it was like, oh, wait, this is supposed to be some future version of humanity from Earth, that the Usurians came and Earth was super in debt or just really in trouble, and they took over, and then they took them to Mars, and then screwed Mars, and then they took them to Pluto, and were in the process of totally using up Pluto's resources and continuing to oppress people from Earth. But now that the Earthlings had revolted they could go back to earth you know that had cleaned itself up in in the millions of years or whatever since this had happened and try and start over and i was like holy shit like that that's a very hopeful end to, to all of this that sounds nice but then i couldn't quite get over the idea of i cannot accept how this exonerates humanity from its own crimes i'm like we are the usurians like we have these people among us they the, the slime people are among us, and uh, I don't know if this if I can buy that this narrative is like, oh, well, that, that wasn't us, that was aliens. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I didn't quite buy it, but the fact that that was even kind of on the table or that this narrative was so far-reaching and realistic to me was like, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever read one of these, at least for me, you all have read many more, that was so realistic and where I felt like, oh, I would I would watch a movie of this. I would read more books about this. Like this was mm. a very realistic and seemingly fleshed out world. Yeah, it doesn't exactly let humanity off the hook, though, because the collector, when he tells the doctor the history of how this all happened, says that Earth was dying and humanity was dying yeah. mainly because of pollution. Uh. And it's like, oh, OK, now Bob Holmes was never a munchy crunchy hippie type but even he will have heard at that point about environmental concerns in mm -hmm. the late 70s and definitely air pollution was a big thing that was worried about in the late 70s and there's the feeling that yeah humanity brought this upon itself and it just happened to have the very bad luck to have the doctor who equivalent of the ferengi <laughs> come in yes. and say we'll save yes, you all yes. but for a price oh my yes God. except they're not even as kind as the ferengi <laughs> no yeah at least the ferengi of i don't know they're kind of dopey uh, <laughs> yeah these people are pretty brutal Oh, God, absolutely brutal. And you can definitely see parallels to the way workers are treated now. So it's it's a disturbing story. And it's even more disturbing when you watch it on television and you're laughing through most of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it really is quite funny, too. Well, that's kind of the postmodernist, millennial, 21st century way, right? The world is burning, but I'm just going to laugh about it. I'm just going to make a joke about it. I'm going to, I have to laugh because otherwise I'm going to cry. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. no, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And something else that I thought was kind of nice about this is that the inherent brutality of this world building that we're in this oppressive society, people are getting killed off left and right, and there's this kind of caste system and all of that, actually makes it so that the character's brutality when it occurs is totally expected and normal. 
And what I'm trying to mean about this is I, I've read in other stories, here's, I don't know, the evil boss of something, and he sent them to the roller room. And I, I don't know, like, <laughs> people would, would do mean things to each other, but there wasn't kind of a, a real reason to me why they would be so evil. I think I'm thinking of, um, I'm trying to think the one that I read about the plants. Uh, <laughs> oh, Seeds of Doom. Thank you, Seeds of Doom. Those henchmen were just freaking shooting people and, and being super evil, and there wasn't like a very good reason for it it was like oh well i guess that person is just a psychopath damn like but there wasn't a lot of motivation for it whereas when these characters for example go to the the kind of undercity and meet mandel and all those people and they're acting very brutal i'm like oh no i would believe that of them these people truly are existing on the edge of this society which is already a society on the edge so i i totally accept all of their viciousness it seems to fit perfectly in very in like a Mad Max kind of way Um, and I realized that I had not had that sense in other stories that the violence here seems much more earned actually huh interesting especially since it seems like it's almost a rebound effect with the PCM because they've been under this anxietal agent and breathing Uh. it in for decades and as soon as that goes away, even Cordo, who is described as being meek to the point of insignificance, mm-hmm. turns pretty violent. <laughs> so it's kind of like taking Claritin with decongestant and then stopping it <laughs> and getting a rebound cold from it. It's almost too much. But the doctor definitely realizes when he's being threatened by Mandrill, which doesn't really come across that well on screen, that Mandrill's heart actually isn't in it. That when it comes to actual violence and committing these acts, they, they're they not going to do it because they're really not conditioned to. Mm-hmm. What else? Yeah, while we were at that point, I would be curious to kind of get your your takes on that. That was the one place where you had said very suddenly, Cordo, once not under the influence of the drug, is like, let's have a revolution. And I was like, wait, what? Like, that really <laughs> happened fast. Like, this character went from one moment ago to dying by suicide to that next being ready to lead a revolution. And I, I I didn't quite buy it. And then the whole thing, too, where the doctor's like, well, we could either save Leela ourselves or start a rebellion, and that will do them both. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I think one of those things is maybe harder to do than the other. <laughs> and how, like, easy all of that, easily that kind of all happened. Um, yes. I, I was like, hmm. So I just wondered what you thought of that. I think there might be some justification for it, because in addition to them being constantly under the influence of PCM, which keeps them in a high state of anxiety, they are aware of the oppressive system that they're in. There, it's. I'm glad one of you pointed out that it's like 1984, because it's like Winston Smith. I understand how, I don't understand why. They know it's happening. They know the mechanics of what's happening. They know that there are executions. They know about the rehabilitation center. They don't know why it's all happening, because when the doctor asks them, what's the company for? What does it produce? They can't answer the question. Yeah, who do the profits go to? Exactly. All they know is that they're literally being taxed out of their lives. And when that anxietal effect goes away, what's going to replace it? It's going to be, hey, we've been repressed all this time. We need to do something about this. And it'll probably turn to anger. So I'd say that just as you said, Jenny, that the violence is earned. I'd say that that's just as much earned. Mm. Yeah, it feels very sudden, but... I would imagine, yeah, if you've you've been under a rock your whole life and then someone picks up the rock and your whole world is just opened up, it's like, yeah. oh, oh, wait, I, I can do what I want to do. I can fight against this. I don't feel like I just want to die all the time. Wonderful. Great. Let's do something <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah. And that's something else we can all relate to in 2021 suddenly coming out of quarantine and realizing, oh, we might have to go back into quarantine. No, we don't want to do this. But yeah, what I think is surprising is that the doctor in the story is so willing to rescue Leela that he's willing to overturn an entire repressive society to do it. (laughs) Yeah. And if she, in fact, I'll quote it, if Leela was still alive, a revolution offered the best hope of rescue. 
If she was dead, it would be a fitting revenge. Ooh. <laughs> That's something. I'm Say what you will about the relationship between Tom Baker and Louise Jameson. That speaks volumes about the relationship between the Doctor and Leela. It's like, I am not going to let her die. And if she does die, I'm this will avenge it. Which is surprising. It won't be the last time we see the Doctor overthrowing an entire society. In fact, there's a later story where he does it all in one night. <laughs> yeah, it's it's brilliant. But yeah, the Doctor's quite dangerous when it comes to things like this. Yeah, I mean, I wrote this down because I was like, well, this happened pretty fast. I don't even, I think it was like the, in a 12-hour period or something. I was like, damn, Hay- Hayden the Collector are, should be just like, well, fuck. Like, what? what? <laughs> we, we had this whole thing going along fine. And then this Time Lord and miss knifey mcniperson and the dog robot came over and okay guess our company wasn't as strong as we thought it was right yeah i kept thinking about that cordo only had three hours of free time before he had to get back to work right (laughs) he's like crap now i have to actually like rebuild society shit damn it that's really funny now that i think about it and yet it's the sort of society that pushes someone like him to suicide and that in and of itself is kind of surprising that you have a character in a doctor who story a show meant for children considering suicide Mm-hmm. I can't imagine that happening in a children's show in 2021. I mean, I, yeah, whenever I read these stories, I, I'm like, oh, yeah, these are for children, but like children of the late 70s and early 80s who <laughs> apparently <laughs> were a tougher brand of child than <laughs> even we were in the the, the late 80s. Dal- Dalton and I, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which are a much tougher brand of child than I think we have even nowadays. Yeah. This book would have to be slapped with a uh, trigger warning on just about every page. Yeah. Oh, I know. You see these things all the time, like clips from uh, the, the cartoon Arthur. I don't know if oh, you all yes. watch Arthur, where just I realized that Arthur said some outrageous things. And I was like, oh, wait, I never realized that. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Well, I suppose that takes us to talking about Hayde's death, because that is the one scene that Dix makes the biggest change to. And in fact, I think, Jenny, you brought it up before I did. So let's talk about that. How did you feel about him being literally tossed <laughs> tossed over the top? I guess the, the brutality wasn't surprising to me, but I liked the way that afterwards the characters reflected on it. Mm-hmm. Yes, for, for those that haven't read the book, and for those who have only seen the televised version, Dix changes that specifically so that when they toss Hade over the side of the building, some people are already looking away, and everybody regrets it afterwards. They're like, oh my god, what have we done? That is not what happens on screen. Hmm. On screen, they toss him over, they are cheering as he falls to his death. <laughs> And Dix must have looked at that and said, do we really want to put this in a children's book and say, hey, if your little brother or little sister pisses you off and you feel like you've been oppressed, toss them over the edge of the building. Yeah, that's probably what that change is all about. I mean, there was a story called Reign of Terror, which took place during the French Revolution. So the idea that the kids hadn't already been exposed to the bourgeoisie overtaking the ruling class in by murdering them, it's like... That's yeah. a point. Well, bear yeah. in mind, Ian Martyr novelized that one. And That's we know true. how Ian Martyr loves to play up the violence, which he did. And that was, of course, novelized way later in the 80s. So again, audience, but... <laughs> And I feel like it's not telling the kids not to murder. It's just like, be careful, kids. When you murder, you're going to have to live with it. Like, it's just, you know, giving them a a warning. You might feel bad about it after the fact. (laughs) Yes. 
and don't go work for the Inland Revenue because someone's going to be really pissed off about their taxes and throw you over the edge of a building. That's really funny that this book is kind of like some person's personal beef about taxation. Uh, That's really, really funny. (laughs) But it does end up being anti-capitalist, doesn't it? Especially Mm -hmm. that one line of the collectors, how often have I told you that grinding oppression of the masses is the only policy that produces reasonable dividends? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you could put those words into the the mouth of Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> Zuckerberg. Yes, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, the yeah. exactly. The, the Zuck. Zuck. The Suck. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Good lord. I mean, there was just a lot of really funny stuff um, about that. I'm tr- when they're getting ready to to, to steam. <laughs> to steam. <laughs> I, this team is. I don't know why I didn't laugh at it more when I was reading, but now it really is kind of absurd. Like I, I mean, I guess that's a pretty terrible way to die, but um, yeah. just it's very funny because you need to think of when I think of steaming, I just think of like Gwyneth Paltrow and giving your vagina a detox. So oh when they're like, "We're gonna steam you," I'm like, "Ooh, like herbs." Um, and I think so... of steamed hams from The Simpsons. Ah, great, yeah. Um, but there's just so many funny things in this conversation about enjoying the steaming <laughs> um, oh i also really enjoy all the names that hade calls the collector oh, that at first it's it's kind of very you know your eminence your whatever and then it kind of starts to get a little bit funnier like your voluminousness your enormity and then at some point he just calls him your grossness and yes. <laughs> it's like these are these are really funny like this is great uh, <laughs> putting the microphones on and he's like oh well we need to what was the range about the range that's where i was laughing oh the saxophonic sound yes, yes the saxophonic sound <laughs> and i was just like wow this is really yeah what was it about real job satisfaction yes <laughs> i yeah yeah that's right the collector gave a sigh of pure contentment. You know, hate. it's at moments like this that I get a feeling of real job satisfaction. Um, the microphone's <laughs> wired in. I mean, it was just like, I, I was, I thought it was really funny. <laughs> like, uh, just really turning in the knife on these kinds of uh, employees. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought this was very well done. That to me, it, I felt like a real joy from Dix writing this. I, he seemed to be having a blast. <laughs> he usually does when he adapts Robert Holmes' scripts, but huh. uh, Holmes has given him a particularly good script this time, I think. Mm-hmm. What else did we like about it? And was there anything you didn't like? Well, since we're t- just talking about more kind of jabs at taxes and, and capitalism, there's a line early on where they see Cordo and, you know, he's kind of explaining to them the system. And the doctor says, probably too many economists in this government. <laughs> These taxes, they're like sacrifices to his tribal gods. Well, roughly the same, but paying tax is more painful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Leela trying to wrap her head around the system of paying taxes when she knows nothing of it and her having to draw the parallel to sacrifices. And it's like, yes. <laughs> and there's a moment when they're all running away. On screen, her line is Perhaps everyone runs from the tax man. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah there's a, a lot of really funny things. At some point, they say, like, well, they got to get the doctor out of there. He's not commercially oriented. I was like, yeah, that's <laughs> quite true. Um, the doctor is not going to be part of this system. There is a lot of really good humor. Yeah, that the Time Lords are not good for commercial development. <laughs> no. No. Let's <laughs> make them into action figures. Whenever the others give the doctor basically the debit card to go yes. get the money, and he goes into the, the ATM and he asks for it in tens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. It really is. <laughs> I find it interesting, too, that Dix describes the consume card as being a little plastic card, so it's an ATM card. It's Mm -hmm. not that on screen. It is this big whopping thing. It's like a brick. And it's, I assume it's because by 1982, eight uh, such cards were probably coming into use. Yeah, but not in 1978. (laughs) 
or 77. I keep forgetting the year this was in, but yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a stitch too. And that's something that I, I, again, I so appreciate about Dix as a writer is that I could tell that, you know, while someone could say that that's a very strange, um, you know, inconsistency, like what, why would they have ATM cards on Pluto in the future? Like maybe it would look like something else, you know, it's, it's so deliberately tongue in cheek that you you know Dix is good enough that he's doing this intentionally to connect with the, the reader and the audience. And it's also plausible, but it, it's so ridiculous. You know, when he's like smiles, the doctor smiles winningly at the little camera and says intends, you just know that Dix is doing that intentionally. And so you yeah. can just roll with it. And I think, you know, there, there have been many of the books that I've read where a moment like that was not handled correctly. And instead, I just thought that it was inaccurate or some sort of inconsistency that took me out of the world. But it absolutely doesn't here because it's just so well done. Yeah, Holmes has given him a particularly good line to work with and Dix has rendered it on the page really well as, yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are a couple of good story moments that kind of establish just how far removed they are from any kind of natural world. Early on when Cordo goes to Hade's office and Hade's desk is made, the top of it is made of mahogany. And he tells him not to put his money on it because it'll scratch it. And he asks him, you know, you've never seen wood, have you? And Mm -hmm. and Hade throws it off as an outdated way of making oxygen. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then later on, when they're down in the little rat hole with the others, and Veet, I think the name was, mm-hmm. is kind yep. of uh, getting at Leela. And she's just amazed that she's wearing animal skins, like real animal skins. And she warns the others, basically not mess up the animal skins because she wants them. (laughs) Right. But it really just shows, yeah, like this is totally a world of concrete and plastic. Not even the sun is real. And so anything natural is really of value. And yeah, and the scene with the raspberry leaves, for instance, which is just very interesting. And there's an added scene that's not on screen when... Cordo and Leela are going to rescue the doctor. They think he's still in the rehabilitation center, and it's actually Bisham who's still there. On their way, they see a line of people waiting for their deaths. And Cordo, out of character, just says, oh yeah, they're waiting to die, which seems out of character because earlier, at the very beginning of the book, he obviously feels some grief for his father dying. Mm -hmm. Of course, he could be feeling grief at having to pay all those taxes for it. (laughs) But it's a moment where you realize, good lord, this society has gone so far that humans are more than willing to die just to get a break from the work. Uh Yeah. I agree, Dalton, that those moments with the wood and the animal skins... Uh, reminded me of of other narratives that I've read where a similar thing has happened. There's William Gibson's Peripheral series. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, um, Mm -hmm. where there's been a mass extinction called the jackpot that has gotten rid of a lot of animal life to the point that in a future, any kind of animals are usually, you know, animatronic or something. Um, And real things like wood or real animals are very hard to come by. And I guess we, now that I think about that, we see that too a bit in Blade Runner, for example. Um, uh-huh. They talk about like the owl or other things being being that way. Um, it's it's in a lot of, of stories. So it's nice to see that represented in this narrative as well. Yeah, I wondered why I was having some echoes of that because I'm currently reading Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep because I'm, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm teaching it this fall. And, and yep. I am. And in that book, there's there are obvious references to the fact that almost all real animals have died. And this culture seems not to have ever heard of animals. So, when, of course, when they say canine, they don't know what the hell he is. Because yeah. <laughs> they've never seen a dog before or even heard oh, of Oh, that's one. right. I love, there was a part that he's like, he can't do stairs or like ladders. <laughs> Yes. That really makes me laugh because I'm like, here's this thing that can apparently just kill people with with a gun. And it's like, oh, crap, like stairs, opposable thumbs. (laughs) Like, darn it. (laughs) Uh, I really like that limitation for this. At some point, the doctor, too, is carrying him. So you can also get a size of of canine, which I was curious a little bit more about how canine looked. Um, 
but you could see. I think it has a tail because it talks about his tail drooping mm-hmm. at one point. Uh, yep. So, I mean, I guess I could just Google it. But where's the fun in that? <laughs> <laughs> How is he described by Rose Tyler in the new series? Very disco. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's very retro. Oh, I see. But it's it. I think it's a very timeless design myself. He was redesigned when they did him for an Australian children's series more than a couple of years back. So if you do a Google search for him, you're probably going to get two different designs. But the one you get the more designs of is the actual model. Oh, I just Googled. This is cute. It looks like a combination of Jetsons and also like the little thing in Star Wars that runs along the floor of the uh, Darth Vader ship, basically. BB-8? I don't even know what it's called. Oh, you mean the little little uh, droids that clean up the floors? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what they're for. That's what this looks like from... Oh, this is is great. Yeah, okay. I could see with this design why Canine would have a hard time with stairs and ladders. (laughs) Okay. At least at this point in this history. Yeah. <laughs> because he gets, let's just say he gets better at it. <laughs> Not on screen, but he gets better at it. <laughs> what else? Anything else we want to say? I, I didn't have too many criticisms about this, honestly. The, the only things that I had mentioned earlier about maybe the revolution seeming a little too easy, but... I also am willing to accept that given the constraints of what this is. You know, this is not a, a long series. We don't have time to slowly build something up. And I really was thinking of Brave New World a lot when I read this. And I remember how in that book, I think there's maybe it's a female character who is going off with someone who is kind of this rebel. And she, she sort of just thinks it's a lot of fun. And then in the end doesn't, I think you know, really get too involved in in the idea of rebelling. And that to me would have been a more realistic thing to have happen, but then you wouldn't have had this happy ending. So I understand too, but why that had to be the way it was. Yeah. Dalton, what about you? Just a couple other things for me. In the beginning, when K-9 basically knows that the doctor is not going to be, he's going to be up to no good. (laughs) <laughs> because of of his <laughs> history. Canine's like, I already know that this one is going to get into some trouble. So I know he doesn't want me <laughs> to come along, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> Which is very prescient of Canine because he hasn't been on the TARDIS long enough at this point to have seen the Doctor get into any sort of trouble without him. But it's yeah. true. <laughs> Yeah, you notice that the Doctor and Leela both seem kind of resistant to having K-9 along with them in this. That's not going to be the case in later stories. Mm. Yeah, he becomes a, a very much an invaluable tool to the point that, let's, let's put it this way, K-9 is going to outlast at least one other companion mm-hmm. before going off with her. But then, come to think of it, that's not quite true either. It, it, it's complicated. Let's just say that. it. You'll see. It's it's complicated. <laughs> oh my God. Um, it is so complicated. And then uh, just another line that's, that's very anti-capitalist. Commercial imperialism is just as bad as military conquest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If not yeah. worse. Which is something that we're all kind of reckoning with today, considering, you know, all the heightened tensions with china that are on everyone's yeah. mind it's it's not as much of a military issue than a commercial issue you know with them mm-hmm. um, infringing upon people's intellectual rights and things like yeah. that my husband was talking about how we talk an app that people use to communicate in china oh yes we talk okay yeah. that like apparently your bank account is attached to that like you can we, yes. we talk pay and i was like whoa what i would would never want my bank to be attached to facebook or instagram for example mm-hmm. that just seems wildly problematic and and yet so many of us have it that way yeah yeah in fact if you think about it that line is absolutely right and absolutely prescient in its own way because at least with military conquest you know who the enemies are and you know you're being oppressed with commercial imperialism the populace is lulled into a sense of security and acceptance because they're they've got a higher standard of living 
we certainly can say that we, if we need anything, if as long as we're able to pay for it, yeah. we can get it immediately. Yeah. And there's no reason for us to actually rebel. But if it ever got to a point where things were less convenient or more onerous, we might. But even then, there's a much higher bar of resistance for us to get over. Yeah, we don't have PCM being pumped into the air, but we might as well have something else pumped into the air for all we accept yeah. it and are complacent of it. Well, and we talk about mental health issues being just drastically more common than they used to be, at least. Probably we're reporting them more too, but still, um, I think it's we're having a public health crisis and that's, I've you know, attached to a number of very real things that are going on too. So um, not all that uh, impossible to see. Yeah, there's, there's tons of things that are affecting us to make us be anxious without there being a chemical <laughs> released into the air. Yes. I mean, the fact that so many people are one paycheck away from being homeless, one accident away from being uh, in medical debt that they will never be able to pay back. Um. <laughs> oh, and you know, something that the story did not choose to capitalize on very much and maybe because this is of its time was uh remember the parts where they're like oh we'll just put out a bulletin to say that the rebellion is underway and we're winning and then everyone will believe it yes. and the doctor's like yeah that's great good idea and we're sitting here being like oh yeah we know what happens when you put things on the news and everybody believes it um and it's not good <laughs> yeah it's not, <laughs> yeah. not good just uh, send out a tweet yeah so that is actually something that the story did did not take um nefarious advantage of maybe because I don't know, still when, when this was made, the news media had not quite become the, you know, terrible, mal uh, malevolent thing that it has today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly. and, and in the UK where the BBC is, is state owned, uh -huh. so it's less likely to be influenced by money. It still can be, but, but yeah, that's a good point though. <laughs> yeah. This story resonates on so many levels, especially in 2021. Yeah, I feel like this is the most kind of real world conversation that we've been able to have about one of these, at least that I've been privy to. Mm -hmm. Now, there are some things that aren't gone into as much detail about in the story, but I, I tend to find myself... I mean, that's always the case with Doctor Who stories, isn't it? They're always lacunae. They're always these gaping holes that if you think about them too long, you're like, oh, wait a minute, this hasn't been examined at all. <laughs> And yet you're more forgiving of it with the story because it really carries you along and then it's you sit with it and there's even more to think about after the fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, shall we go to Goodreads? Let's shall. Let's I shall. Think, I think so. I think we've, we've pretty much covered everything I had highlighted, so. Yep, I think we've shot our wad. Okay. <laughs> As we always do... <laughs> Good God. Steamy. Where did that come from? Steamy, yes. <laughs> As we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment on our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it here before reviewing it ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.42, which is a bit higher than the previous book. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Michael gives the book 3 stars and says, I believe this is one of the last 4th Doctor serials that Terrence Dix adapted for the target line, and I can't help but feel that he put a bit more care into it. Or maybe he just liked the script from Robert Holmes a bit more and it shows on the page. Either way, this adaptation is every bit as dark and satirical as the original version. Holmes was apparently upset about taxes and wrote this in response. I wish I could say that it felt like we'd learned the lessons of what Holmes warns us about here and become a better world in the years since it was originally aired, but I don't necessarily think that's true. Instead, we've got a story that still feels relevant today. Yes, there is a bit of corridor chasing in the middle installments, but there is some good stuff here. Leela is well used, and you can see why Louise Jameson liked Holmes' writing for her character. Jameson does her usual good job of reading this one and bringing it to 
life on audio because she did the audiobook. That alone gets a star. Our Patreon Dave Davis gives it four stars and says a lot of the on-screen humor is lost in this book, which is mostly a shame, though Baker is at his look-at-me-I'm-so-zany worst at this point, and some of his quote-unquote jokes, such as in the TARDIS at the beginning where he suddenly leaps into the air while shouting his line, I don't miss at all. Most of the funnier stuff is probably not transferable to the page that comes from the performances. Terrence Dix continues to surprise me in his treatment of Leela. There's one scene in particular that I like where she and the Doctor first meet the others and are being threatened. On the page, it's more or less what we see on screen, but rearranged. Except that Leela is threatened, the Doctor gallantly steps in front of her to protect her, then Leela, quote, gently moved him aside. <laughs> Using the word gently gives Leela a quiet strength. I would have expected an avowed male chauvinist like Dix to make Leela more emotional, if not screaming, then at least shouting threats. Dix also improves the story by making it a lot less callous, mostly by fixing one scene when Gatherer Hade meets his demise, the mob all cheer, but Dix has several of them showing various degrees of remorse. And finally, Damon gives it two stars and says, never took to this TV episode, but the book made the corridors seem a little more interesting. <laughs> It's a good idea for a story, but not the best told one. Hmm. Okay. Well, Jenny, out of five stars, what would you give this one? It sounds crazy, but I want to give it a five out of five. I just don't really see how these could get any better than this. It's written beautifully. It's funny. It's, uh, you know, we, the fact that we can even have a kind of in-depth discussion of themes and how they would, you know, apply to, to now that it's it's really making me think about kind of humanity in a far reaching way is I mean that to me that is what what writing, what what art strives for, right? Is to have a timeless quality that can still reach into the future. And for being <laughs> ostensibly a an adaptation for children or at least like teenagers or something and the fact that it can still do that it is remarkable uh i give it five out of five all right dalton how about you i'm gonna say four four out of five this this one really hits home <laughs> in a lot of places it's it's not heavy-handed like in a bad way though there's a there's a lot of themes there that I identify with and and feel on a personal level. I didn't feel like any of the characters were really extraneous. I didn't feel like I was as confused about what was happening with the plot as I've been in some of the other stories that we've read. Again, Leela had a really strong showing this time. She even though she's like the damsel in distress, she still shows her strength. She still shows that like she's not going to give in to the <laughs> the whims of the people who have captured her and are trying to kill her. I haven't seen Tom Baker's performance of the doctor, but in the book, it seems to be more of his kind of verbal comedy, not so much physical comedy that, that is highlighted, but yeah, overall, this one was really uh, a fun summer read <laughs> for me, <laughs> which I haven't said in a while, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed this one, and uh, now I'm going to have to go watch the televised version. So, four for me. Okay. And I think it's uh, four for me as well, which surprises me. Because given this era of Doctor Who, and given the fact that we are in our all-dicks-all-the-time season, where he wrote all of the books for the season, I fully expected this one to just be a paint-by-numbers script-to-page novelization. And it is not, and it is surprising how good it is. Now, granted, it doesn't go out of its way, but there are a few times it does, and those are really important ones, such as the characterization of Leela, making sure that anything that would have seemed weak on the screen is not on the page, giving the doctors some justification for overthrowing an entire society just to save his companion that sounds kind of bloodthirsty <laughs> i i wish he'd given a little bit of motivation for his killing the technician but given that that moment is played for laughs on screen it's kind of hard to give justification for it so i'm willing to give it a pass it's not a perfect book but it certainly is a very good book in fact it's probably even a great novelization so yeah 
four out of five. Well, thank you all. Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time we celebrate our 100th episode. Wow! Yeah, I know. With a joint episode with the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, hosted by Larry Van Mersbergen, when we will be discussing, I kid you not, Jane Airy's fan novel, The Doctor and the Enterprise. <laughs> if you yes. cannot get hold of a copy of it, I will be putting a link to a copy of it that's online so that you'll be able to read it before that broadcast because um, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> it's not a Target novel. It's not even technically Target, but what the hell? It's our 100th, so who cares, right? <laughs> you make the rules. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in words with no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDog at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. That was really good evil laugh that you did there, Tony. <laughs> I try my best. I try my best. It comes from years of teaching. It comes in handy in the classroom. <laughs>